Welcome to Dividing Lines, a series of special programmes from the Near Futurist, in which we will be bringing together respected innovators and thinkers to examine some of the most consequential debates in technology and society today. Dividing Lines is powered by Diffusion, an award-winning international PR agency on a mission to help tech innovators to take on the status quo and transform the future faster. My name is Guy Clapperton. And if you want to feed back on the podcast or maybe even suggest ideas for guests and topics, I'd love to meet you in the shiny LinkedIn group I've set up. Just search for my name and near futurist and you'll find it pretty easily. First, welcome back to The Near Futurist, which had a summer break and then I had a wedding anniversary, 30th, thanks for asking, so it had a bit of a longer break than I'd imagined. It's four years old now, though, and of course we're heading for winter, and that means a number of things, but for many people, particularly in my native UK and elsewhere, it's going to mean cost. This isn't the place to discuss whether the government's help has been enough, but potentially doubling charges has to be better than, I don't know, quadrupling them, or something like multiplying them by six, which we were threatened with. But there may be a bit more to it than that. The fact is, we've been consuming a lot of power for a long time, quite inexpensively. And as recently as yesterday, I'm recording this in October, there were warnings of potential power cuts in the winter months. So to discuss what to do and whether indeed this is a universally bad thing, I have two experts on the line. One is Chief Executive and Founder of Snug with 2Gs, a sustainability-focused startup which helps homeowners identify, finance and implement energy-efficient improvements to their homes. The other is Associate Lecturer in Energy Economics for the University of Surrey and the Chief Executive of Crystal Energy. The Chief Executive of the first company is Robin Peters and the Academic and Chief Executive is Dr. Carol Natalie. Welcome to you both. So perhaps if we could start with the factual um, account. Carol, I know you work at a high level with a lot of energy industry personnel, strictly as an independent, but also you've got uh, the uh, commercial perspective. Why are our heating bills going up? Well, it's pretty simple. We are facing an energy crisis, uh, which has largely affected supplies that are available. And at a time when demand is pretty strong, especially after the recovery from COVID-19 and economies opening up, that put additional pressure on the demand and also on the supply. And as a result, prices increased. And it's not only energy prices that have increased. You also look at other commodities, such as food commodities. And then you see there also... Also, we saw a huge increase in prices and energy prices and food prices both added largely to the, inf- to the inflationary environment that we are seeing today. We're seeing inflation reaching high levels, really record levels not seen in 30, 40 years in key economies in the world, including in the UK. And that by itself is translating to a higher cost of living, including higher energy bills. All of that makes a lot of sense. Now, uh, the Prime Minister, just in case people are listening to this in the future, that's uh, the very recently installed Liz Truss just over the last few weeks, has been blaming Russia quite publicly, completely, without wishing to get party political. Does that stand up to much scrutiny? Blaming Russia is, of course, uh, true and accurate, but completely is not, because Russia has definitely played a role. The war in Ukraine has played a role, and Russia curtailing its supplies to Europe, gas supplies, other energy source of supplies, and also Europe saying no to Russian energy supplies have surely contributed to higher prices in a market where you don't have plenty of availability of supplies, as I 
alternative to Russian supplies. But that is only part of the story because you have to look back at even summer 2020 when the pandemic was still around. And you can still see that even back then or towards the end of that year, prices, gas prices in particular, started to increase. So energy prices started to increase long before Russia invaded Ukraine for for several reasons. I'm not going to bore the listeners with all of them. But one of them is the fact that, first of all, you had a very cold winter in Asia. And as a result, you know, unusual winter in Asia. Plus, add to that, for example, some COVID-related measures in Japan, where the government taught people to work from home, but to keep the windows open in the middle of winter. So that increased the demand for energy. And at the same time, the supplies were not able to keep up because of all the uh, constraints on people working and, you know, had supply chain problems and that took a while to uh, to be resolved. So that accumulated over over time and culminated with the, with the invasion of um, of Ukraine. So definitely the war, Russia is largely to blame, but to blame it entirely on the current energy crisis is for me more politically motivated than economically factual. Thank you for offering not to bore the listeners. You're quite right. That is my job. Robin, um, energy bills are going up one way or the other. How worried should people be? Yes, well, very worried. And uh, as you know, energy prices have gone up already by a factor of three. And fuel poverty was already a problem and, and quite a hidden problem in the economy. So it, it's almost become the favourite topic of conversation in the pub and at dinner parties how late people can leave it to put their heating on. I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday who was saying she was trying to wait until November uh, before she puts her heating back on. And I live in Scotland, so that's pretty extreme. So, yes, people are are very worried about it. What uh, can they do about it, apart from obviously go to a nice warm pub where they can't afford to spend any money anymore? Well, there are a number of simple things that people can do quite readily and that there's a lot of material in the public domain about turning your thermostat down and putting putting new radiator valves on. Um, but there is quite quickly you get into making structural changes to your house to improve energy efficiency. But that can start simple as well, you know, putting energy efficient light bulbs in, et cetera. And there are a number of things like, you know, that have gone out of favor recently, but having curtains is uh, is a good thing. Putting cur- putting carpets down, draft excluding skirting boards, etc. There are a lot of pretty simple measures that people can do to quite significantly reduce their energy consumption. And also a lot of topics which have been around for some time, loft insulation, 60% of houses in the UK don't have sufficient loft insulation. And we've been talking about that for decades. We have indeed. A lot of this is about lifestyle and about habit. And one interesting thing to me is that we've all been pretty profligate with our energy use. I put my hands up to that for quite some time now. This can be even more prevalent overseas. I was on holiday in Dubrovnik recently, and I noticed that an awful lot of people would keep their cars running when they were waiting for somebody or whatever. We would, by instinct in the UK, turn our cars off. I don't know whether we would have done so 20 years ago, perhaps. But uh, uh, Carol, as uh, with the academic background, is there any data on how good or bad we are at energy conservation in the UK? 
Yeah, you can compare, you can access this data and compare it across countries, but also you have to look at it from um, a different level. So not just at the country level, because it can be misleading, but you can look at, for example, households versus, let's say, building. And on building, I have to say the UK is not really stellar because of the poor insulation that you find here, for example, compared to houses in Germany. And there is a lot we can do to improve that, um, uh, that aspect. And that by itself is not really something bad because it tells you that you can do a lot on the demand side uh, to curtail demand and consumption just by taking very simple measures and tackle those areas where the UK is lagging behind when it comes to energy conservation and efficiency. There's also the fact that uh, a lot of the housing stock in the UK is very old, of course. If you're looking at, say, the USA, uh, most of the housing stock there is going to be a couple of hundred years old at most. In the UK, we have some houses going back four or five centuries, uh, not the majority, of course. But I'm just wondering um, how energy companies and governments react to the fact that people could be doing something, but apparently they're not. I mean, Carol, do you have any instinct as to why people don't take these simple these simple measures like insulation, like draft excluders, as uh, Robin's just suggested? Let me, first of all, focus on the government side. And I'm, if I were to compare the UK to rest of Europe, I have the feeling that the UK government was rather late in terms of sending signal to and messages to people, to households, even to businesses, to do something about their energy consumption. I spent some time in Germany earlier this year, and you would hear about um, government calling um, people everywhere to, uh, to reconsider their energy consumption, to reduce their energy consumption, try to be as efficient as they can ahead of winter because they, they, Europe is facing a war. You don't get the same sense of, I don't want to say panic, but actually maybe a sensible behavior to prepare for the worst case scenario. Only very recently, we heard uh, like National Grid or Ofgem saying that there could be blackouts in, in the UK in winter because of the situation, the current crisis. And I think we need more of these warnings. Not necessarily to create a sense of panic, but make people realize that this is a very serious situation and they have to reconsider the way they use energy. Energy companies by themselves, they tend to be at a more advanced stage than governments because they are more exposed to market prices, to the high energy prices, uh, in addition to all the other problems that they have been facing. And they tend to respond faster than households in terms of improving their energy consumption and reducing um, energy. But just to tell you, for example, about the Germany, what people have been doing, at least in the village where I was, people used to rent some of their rooms on Airbnb. They suspended that and they are they took um, insulating their windows pretty seriously. And also streetlights. You don't see any more streetlights in the evening in Germany. And also in government buildings, they are cutting off hot water. All these small measures, cumulatively, they have an impact on the bigger picture on total consumption in the country. It's possibly worth mentioning as well that in the newspaper today, uh, this is October 2022, uh, it was reported that uh, the government was going to issue, in the UK, was going to issue some guidelines and then uh, decided not to because the um, the current uh, belief uh, of the current administration is against being particularly nanny state. Robin, would you welcome uh, any further guidelines that, uh, from uh, the authorities or are people going to be just cynical in the UK about uh, any advice that comes from uh, whichever of the governments happens to be in place by the time this goes out? No, in a, in in a word, I think British people are pretty good at being cynical and probably rightly um, disregard a, a degree of government guidelines. Guidelines, but I think what's more important is consistency in government policy. What people have suffered 
from over the last few decades is a constant shift in the grant environment, what the government has done to try and incentivize uh, energy efficiency. And a number of the interventions have been really unsuccessful. Either they, they've been taken up to, by a high, to a high degree and not worked, or people have ignored them. So uh, I think consistency is more important than guidelines or fact sheets or what have you. I, I do think, I mean, just to, to Carol's point and, and your point earlier, the UK housing stock is in a really poor state. The estimate from the, the Climate Change Committee is that it's going to cost in excess of £250 billion to fix UK housing, part of the plan to get to, to net zero. I mean, that is an enormous undertaking. And even before the current crisis, the government did not have anything like the funds available to support that. What we're looking at in SNUG is engaging private sector finance to help um, fund that transition. And, and uh, we, we've got some interesting ideas that we can change the economics of the decision about whether to install a heat pump or to put solar PV, etc., or solar panels on your house. At the moment, if you look at um, the payback, how long it takes to pay back on some of these initiatives, they can take in excess of 30 years. Another friend of mine did an analysis and the, the proposals he were given were going to pay back in 125 years. I mean, it's just nonsense, but it's just not rational for people to uh, to make those investments. So there are, there are a number of different levers we can use to incentivize people to do the right thing. Do you want to sound as confident as my interviewee in this episode? If you talk to the press or other media, are you worried you'll be misquoted, or they'll just publish their story and not yours? Clapperton Media Associates can help with coaching. Drop me a note, guy at clapperton.co.uk, and we'll arrange a time for an exploratory call. Now, back to the podcast. Speaking of levers, I mean, uh, Carol, nobody's saying we should welcome a potential average of £6,000 per year increase or something as the average spend on energy per household. But as a society, we do use a lot. I mean, leaving aside the extraordinary circumstances we have at the moment, when things have settled, and I hope they will, I don't know, do you think there's a case for saying that cost should be among the instruments that uh, a society should be using to dampen the demand? The answer I'm going to give you has not made me popular among many people, but look, I'm a consumer. I also don't like to pay high energy bills, but this is basic economics. Consumers react significantly to prices. So if we want to achieve a notable decrease in demand, if we want to improve energy efficiency, we should allow uh, people to be exposed to higher energy prices. I'm not saying everybody can afford them. There are those to so the low income households should receive some support and protection from the government. But there is a significant proportion of the population which can not can afford, but can react to higher energy prices. And this is not me speaking. This is not my personal opinion. This is factual. This is data that has accumulated over years and decades everywhere around the world. If energy is cheap or it's not you know, expensive, we don't really think twice about our consumption pattern. I used to live in the Middle East in Abu Dhabi. Their electricity is super cheap. Did I care about switching off all the light bulbs when I left home? Not really. And I had a big house there. Here I have a tiny flat in London and I bet 
but you know, I make sure I switch off every single light before I leave my apartment and I leave the heating at a very low um, temperature. Whereas in Abu Dhabi, you would put the AC on even if you're not in the house so that by the time you go back, it's pretty cool. And you do that only because energy is cheap. So we should not look at high energy bills as evil. They are not pleasant. I don't like to pay them, but they may, may be actually the most powerful tool we have around to uh, get over this crisis with a slower demand growth. I can take the logic of that. I still, uh, you know, having elderly relatives, or at least one as I do, um, I, I do, I'm still have concerns about affordability uh, for the for the basics rather than for the discretionary stuff. I think is what we're uh, moving towards. Uh, Robin, what's your perspective on that? Probably not surprisingly, I disagree. I mean, just remember, not that long ago, there was a view that energy was going to be so cheap that people shouldn't even put meters in their houses because nuclear power was going to be create endless, boundless, limitless energy for people. And, uh, you know, I'd actually come for the thesis, well, why not? If we can, if we can generate clean energy cheaply, why shouldn't it be available uh, in great quantities to people? And going back to the point I made earlier, high fuel prices have certainly got people's attention, but it's not driving the right kind of behavior or change. So people are living in cold houses rather than making the structural improvements to the house that they really need to do. And we need to incentivize people to make the right decisions. And we are a first world country. We should People should be able to have cheap energy and live in comfortable homes. Okay, you've mentioned a couple of alternative sources, nuclear, for example, and uh, solar. Uh, and uh, of course, there's also wind out there. The government seems very keen on fracking and uh, less so on solar energy. Um, I could be just caricaturing it, and that's not my intention, but that's certainly been the headline stuff. Uh, Carol, is that a coherent strategy? I mean, first of all, I'm not quite sure if the government is more keen on fracking than on solar energy, because to be fair, the UK government is still pursuing an aggressive climate change agenda and is uh, still a big fan of green energy, rightly so. But they are also looking for um, other options, or not, I wouldn't say alternatives, but complementary solutions to, pro- to allow greater supplies to come to the market and therefore put downward pressure on prices. And this is where fracking or looking for shape gas in the UK is is attracting a greater attention. Whether it will solve the problem, I have my own doubts because, I mean, if we look globally where shale resources are, shale gas resources are, they are, you can find them everywhere, but but only the US is the main producer of shale oil and gas resources, even though they are not sitting on the largest shale oil and gas resource. And this is because the US has very, very peculiar market conditions where individuals own the resources below the ground, which is not the case anywhere else around the world. You have vast areas with low population density. You don't have that in the UK. And in the US, it took a while to get that technology ongoing and all the regulations in place and the infrastructure you need because it's quite intensive operation, trucks, waters, you know, chemicals, uh, you name it. And I'm not quite sure it is wise to put a great bet on shale gas or fracking the technology to get the shale gas out of the ground as a solution to the crisis. I think you'd you'd get more from the North Sea, if you want to talk about gas, from the aging gas fields, from perhaps new smaller gas fields than you might get from fracking, at least under existing conditions. 
Okay, Robin also mentioned uh, other alternatives such as nuclear. Um, is there enough happening on that, do you think, Carol? With nuclear energy, I have my reservation about the UK uh, policy. Robin mentioned earlier the lack of uh, consistency and the importance of having coherent, consistent policy. And I find that pretty lacking in the UK. There is a great potential for nuclear energy, particularly if we see the small modular reactors, which are, if you want, a mini version of the conventional, traditional nuclear power plants. But the technology has not been really proven yet. It's a very nice concept. But I think we're not far from it. So hopefully if that progresses, then we might see nuclear uh, power playing a bigger role. But in the UK, I have my own reservations about the lack of consistency in the government policy vis-a-vis -vis nuclear power. Okay. And what's the picture worldwide? It varies significantly because if you ask me which source of energy is the most controversial, I would say nuclear energy. And I'm not going to go too far. I just look at the EU, for instance. You have countries like France. They rely significantly on nuclear power for, for electricity generation, whereas next door Italy does not use uh, nuclear. And Germany wanted to put an end to its nuclear fleet by the end of this year, but they extended it until next year only because of the crisis. So nuclear energy is a very divisive source of energy. Uh, Austria wanted to take the EU to court because they labeled nuclear power as sustainable green energy and they don't like that. So it's pretty also inconsistent in the rest of the world because of the controversy surrounding nuclear power. Okay, uh, so there are obviously questions to be asked there. And I think also there's an element of emotion in the, uh, the word nuclear, which uh, perhaps we need to step away from eventually if we're going to get to the truth of whether it's any, uh, any use or not. Back to today, of course, Robin, you're working on a platform that helps people finance and implement energy uh, efficiencies. Particularly, I'm interested in the financing stuff because, of course, you, you can't just say, well, I think I'll just put some solar panels on the um, uh, on the roof because they've all got to be paid for. What, what should people be doing now and what is your company going to do to help? The first thing we're trying to do is, is to make it simpler for people and demystify a lot of the jargon in this area and join up a number of the different players. So, it's a very fragmented industry between manufacturers of equipment, installers, the government, financiers, etc. Uh, and we're just we're, Snug is a platform that brings those together to help people work out a plan for their own house, which is doable and achievable. And, it, and that plan might start with very simple things in their house, the radiator valves and simple draft exclusion, insulation, etc., and move on to the more complex things over time for in the financial sense i mean my background is in financial set services we're trying to take the business case for making these investments from being essentially a no hoper i things which pay back over 50 years if you're only going to live in a house for 10 years aren't worth doing and turn that business case into a no brainer by adding in different elements into the business case so leveraging purchasing power and, and the the, the reduced reduction in cost of some of this technology, consistency in grants that getting the government to pay for more insulation, for instance, critically incorporating the impact in house value by making some of these measures. Now, today, frankly, house value is not really linked hardly at all to the energy efficiency of the house. And that needs to change you know value has 
value a house based on the school districts it's in or whether it looks nice or has a nice kitchen not on the energy efficiency of the house and and of course that the energy efficiency will be worth thousands of pounds over over a few years and we're also looking at creating a market for voluntary carbon credits so that there is a mechanism by which we could give consumers hundreds if not thousands of pounds in incentives for them to reduce their carbon usage so when you tear those different elements on top of each other you can get payback within a year so within the first year you get benefits and 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 the cost becomes not a problem anymore that sounds uh, admirable uh, carol tell me about crystal energy Crystal Energy looks at market developments, government policies, and contractual frameworks, legislation, institutional framework when it comes to energy economics. So this is really what we focus on, what makes sense, what drives investment, what drives policies, which policies make sense and which don't. And it's going, it's, it's done globally. And it's interesting when you compare the divergences, even within the same country between different governments when it comes to policy. And unfortunately, you see sometimes things that make pretty obvious sense from an economic perspective are not necessarily politically acceptable because they don't gain government much popularity. And this is, I would say, the big challenge that we um, that we find. And another dimension I wanted to also highlight is that now we're, look, we're discussing this topic from the UK's perspective, from the rich world's perspective. Uh, but at Crystal Energy, we also do a lot of work in poorer countries, the sub-Saharan Africa and the Sierra Leones of this world, the Mozambiques of this world, where there's a huge poverty. And there, if we have this, if we had the same conversation, the focus would have been completely different. Actually, they are talking about climate colonialism there or a disconnection between what the reality on the ground there and what the Western powers are discussing. So I think if we were to achieve the global net zero climate agenda, we need to take everybody's perspective on board and not just the rich men's and women's world perspective. I think that's right. And it's also got to be a, not got to be a case of the Western world telling the rest of the world what to do again, because historically that hasn't ended well. Absolutely. So if I could finish up by asking you both where people can find out more about what you do, perhaps Carol, you could start off. They can find me on the website of the University of Surrey, the Economics Department, or on the website of Crystal Energy, that they can contact us for any question they might have. That's fine. And Crystal has an OL, is that correct? OL, yes. That's fine, just in case people start searching for Crystal and get it completely wrong. I've got this friend who did that. And uh, Robin, uh, snug with two Gs, but uh, where can people find out more about you? Snugenergy.com. That's and lovely. Thank you, guys. Snug with two Gs. Okay, that's great. Uh, Dr. Carol Nakhle of the University of Surrey and Robin Peters of Snug, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. you. And many thanks to you for listening. That was the Near Futurist podcast with me, Guy Clapperton, and my guests in the latest in the series of Dividing Lines, sponsored by Diffusion PR. Don't forget to have a look at the website at nearfuturist.co.uk, leave a review on iTunes, if you liked it, or come along and have a look at the LinkedIn group. I'll be back soon. This has been a Clapperton Media Associates production. Thank you. Thank you.